Welcome back to the Waves and Why Invest podcast. It's me, Luke Hyde-Smith, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Tom Saville. In the second installment of our mini-series, we will be joined by Hartley Rogers, Executive Co-Chairman of Hamilton Lane, one of the world's largest allocators to private markets. It was a fascinating discussion with Hartley as he clearly explained his progression and experience in the industry to date and where he sees both some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities and why investors really should be considering an allocation to the private market. It was great to hear from Hartley, so let's dive in. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Hartley Rogers, Executive Co-Chairman of Hamilton Lane. Amongst the vast list of accolades to Hartley's name, he is also Chairman of the Advisory Board of Harvard X, the online learning initiative of Harvard University. Hartley, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. May I ask you to introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of your career to date? Luke, thank you very much. I'm very honored and happy to be here. Always enjoy conversations like this and looking forward to it very much. Yeah, I'm not a young person. I came out of college in 1981, uh, university in 1981, and I went to work at Morgan Stanley in the M&A department. I spent uh, a year in New York and a year in London. Then I went back to business school went back to Morgan Stanley after that and stayed there for a career that in total spanned about 17 years. I went into the private equity business about 10 years into that time frame with a fund called Prince's Gate that was created in 1991. I was one of the co-founders. Prince's Gate was a private equity fund made up exclusively of wealthy families, and it was a club. It was kind of a club fund. We Morgan Stanley assembled a group of uh, six or seven families, names that I think the listeners would know, people like the Agnelli family from Italy, uh, Bill Gates, and some others. And we started investing in deals that were not control deals. It was growth, equity, minority kinds of deals. That was a wonderful initiative. It went on for quite a while. I left and went to Credit Suisse to co-head their U.S. kind of North American leverage buyout team. We raised a fund and invested that. A point in that journey, we bought DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret, which had a, a very good private equity business. And we put those businesses together. And I was part of that for a while. Left that in 2002 and really spent quite a bit of time thinking about the evolution of the private equity industry and what were the opportunities that came out. And it struck me that there was a need for somebody to help limited partners, that investors in private equity funds were faced with an increasingly complicated landscape, an opaque landscape, because information, as we all know, is harder to come by in the private markets. You had a kind of imbalance of power between limited partners that were frequently pension funds or sovereign wealth funds or other institutions, endowments that had limited staffs and limited travel budgets. They couldn't hire the people they wanted to hire. And they were being asked to evaluate and invest in this increasingly complicated landscape of general partners, the buyout firms and venture firms and all the very well-known firms that we know today. And I felt like somebody needed to help the limited partners. There needed to be a service to really help them understand and develop this. As part of that evaluation, I came across Hamilton Lane. Hamilton Lane was already a well-known firm because it had been the what we call the gatekeeper to some very large U.S. pension funds, including CalPERS. And CalPERS at the time in the uh, late 90s and early aughts was probably the largest investor in private equity worldwide. And so Hamilton Lane was known for that. I was impressed with the management. Uh, I was impressed with the vision of the firm and had a very good reputation. And the opportunity came up to put together a sort of a management buyout of the firm, to buy out the founder and to put the firm on more of a growth trajectory. And so I ended up doing that, leading a group that bought together with other members of management the controlling stake in the company. I brought Bill Gates in, his family office, as one of the original investors in the group, as well as a few other outside investors that had some good domain expertise. And we set about building the business. I started with Hamilton Lane a little more than 20 years ago. Yeah, fascinating. And what a journey and what a time for the private equity and the private market industry in general. I mean, I think it would be great for our audience and listeners if you gave a sort of brief overview of Hamilton Lane today, how the business has evolved, 
uh, since you joined in 2003? So the firm has grown a great deal. The firm as it existed in 2003 was kind of 40 or 45 people in one office outside of Philadelphia. The business was really divided between advisory business, working for large institutions that needed an advisor, kind of a consultant to help them build their private markets programs, and a discretionary business where those same institutions didn't, as I said before, really have the staff resources or the budgets to do all of the things that they should be doing in private markets to create an adequately diversified portfolio and really identify where the sources of alpha could be. And so Hamilton Lane had begun a business of outsourcing where they would take over on a discretionary basis parts of investors' portfolios and manage those parts themselves. And so when I came into the business, it was kind of half and half between those two things. And we really decided to expand the firm. And we believed that the markets were going global. We believed that the markets were going to cover more asset classes in bigger size than they had done before. We believed that data was extremely important in this and represented a real competitive advantage for those who had it, like Hamilton Lane. Because of our footprint as an advisor and as a discretionary manager, Hamilton Lane, even back then, 20 years ago, had an enormous pool of private markets data going back many years, highly detailed, audited, cash flow data, fund by fund, deal by deal that really other people didn't have. And so having access to that was part of what enabled Hamilton Lane to be good at what it did back then. But it also represented a real opportunity for the firm going forward as we saw the market unfolding. So we kind of grew the firm in three or four dimensions. So the first dimension is what I mentioned before. We decided that we would grow the firm globally. Our view was that private equity, private markets were good asset classes, that they represented real opportunities for alpha, that it was not just a function of leverage and buyouts. You could see that in the results of the most sophisticated institutional investors at the time, which were big endowments who had big allocations to private equity and their returns were better than anybody else's and had been for a long time. And so our view was people were going to recognize that. They were going to want the opportunity to invest in these asset classes. And so we began expanding outside the US and we already had some clients in Europe, notably in the UK. We expanded that. We expanded in uh, Northern Europe. We expanded in the Middle East. We expanded in Japan. We opened in Australia. We opened in Korea. We really went on kind of a, a globalization initiative. And it was really not just finding clients. I think people think of that as, well, you found people overseas who were interested in investing in private equity. But it was also investing in funds in those places and getting to know the private equity landscape in those places. I think it would be great, actually, to describe what we mean by private markets and the various different facets to it. Absolutely. So what we mean by private markets are illiquid investments that are made without being publicly listed or publicly traded, where you don't have regular earnings announcements that have to be made. And so obviously, depending on what jurisdiction you're in as a public company, those announcements can be quarterly or they can be semi-annually. But living and dying by those earnings announcements produces a very short-term outlook in publicly listed companies that makes it hard for them to make the right kinds of long-term investments in their business, to move their business in ways that will create longer-term value. And so if you kind of go into financial theory and think about discounted cash flow and terminal values, what you're really trying to do is anticipate not just the nearer-term cash flows, but also what's going to give rise to a good terminal value for a company. That's the inherent value of the enterprise. And if you're living and dying by short-term earnings announcements, it's very hard to do that. And so the private markets really are, is the whole ecosystem set up to own and manage companies in a long-term way without being under the spotlight of the public markets. And that's everything from little startup companies that are too small to go public, venture capital, and all of the things around that into the biggest part of the private markets, which is management buyouts, into infrastructure, into private credit, into private real estate. It's the whole ecosystem today that represents that. Just to size that for you, when I came into Hamilton Lane 20 years ago, the total private markets NAV was something on the order of seven to 800 billion US dollars. Today, 
total private markets NAV, depending on what you're counting, is somewhere more in the range of seven to eight trillion U.S. dollars. And if you add in the commitments, the dry powder and the other things that are part of the way private markets work, those numbers are larger. You know, you push up over 10 trillion. So it is a very large and meaningful asset class, still kind of small in the global financial asset landscape. If the global financial asset landscape is, call it 300 trillion of assets, it's not huge, but it's much more meaningful than it was when we started 20 years ago. Would you say that ability to take a longer term perspective is the primary operating advantage of staying private longer or are there other examples that you can talk to? I think there's really two or three things about it. Let's just take for a second the biggest piece that I was talking about, which is buyouts, management buyouts, all that, because that's maybe the easiest example. In a management buyout, a single private equity firm usually becomes the controlling shareholder. But of course, that private equity firm is responsible to its own investors, its limited partners, who've given them the money to invest in the company with the understanding that they're going to take the money, invest it, work on the company, grow it, improve it, make it better, and then sell it and then send them back, hopefully a nice gain on the money that they invested. So that single private equity firm has tremendous incentive to maximize the value and enhance the value of the company that they're buying. So what they do is they will put together a board of directors that will be made up of people who are deeply expert in what they're trying to do at the company, whether that's familiarity with the industry that the company operates in or familiarity with some of the key things the company has to do. Quite often that involves bringing the company up to date from an information technology standpoint and the use of technology and how they're doing their business. But it could be other things too. It could be people with a legal expertise or people with a certain kind of marketing expertise, but it's people who have real domain expertise in the underlying business. I would argue to you that certainly in the U.S., maybe a little less true in Europe, certainly in the U.S., boards of directors of public companies are not made up of people that have appropriate expertise in operating and growing an underlying business. There are people that have been recruited not by a shareholder, but by management. There are people who are satisfying various different objectives, some of them regulatory, like they have to have a you know financial background to be an audit committee chair, and some of them diversity-oriented. You have to have so many people of color or so many women or things like that that you're trying to assemble into these public company boards. And what you wind up with are boards that are very much not governing management. They're not policing management, and they don't really have deep domain expertise in the underlying companies. So I'd say the first thing, Tom, is you're creating a control dynamic where you have a group of people that management has to listen to because they are appointed by the controlling shareholder who have appropriate and deep expertise in the underlying business. So that's number one. I'd say number two is there's tremendous alignment of interests in private equity-owned companies because they set a set of metrics for compensating management based on achieving goals that they think are the right long-term goals for the company with marks along the way that indicate that those long-term goals are being addressed. And so they're able to align interests that way. And of course, they also give very meaningful amounts of stock in the companies generally to the management team as well to incentivize them to maximize the value and really align them with the controlling shareholder. Finally, is what I said before, which is the lack of the very short-term orientation on how the company is doing, where you make an earnings announcement and then you watch the stock price and did it go up that day? And it's extremely short-term oriented in terms of how many public companies operate. And you can see that in the markets even today. I don't know if you've paid attention to the whole thing about NVIDIA's earnings announcement and all the financial media. What's NVIDIA's earnings going to be? And are they going to be good? And then when they come out and they're okay in the aftermarket, NVIDIA is up 6%, which is billions of dollars in market value that suddenly changed. I'm glad even you, Hartley, are watching the announcements on NVIDIA's earnings like a hawk. I mean, it's crazy. The way the public markets are today, it's sort of a popularity contest that goes up and down. You know, I was with a very well-known long-term equity investor last night who was talking about when he was growing up, the most the stock would move on an earnings announcement unless there was some disaster that came out. But the most the stock would move would be, you know, a percent here, a percent there. Three percent was a huge move in a stock if you went back 
30 or 40 years on an earnings announcement. And today, you're regularly seeing moves. If you looked at Palo Alto Networks, which was the other side of the story, it was down, what, 25% on an earnings announcement. And it wasn't even they missed earnings. They didn't miss earnings. They made some statement about what was going on with federal contracts. And all of a sudden, it's worth 25% less than the day before, really. The public markets are a very difficult thing to deal with today. And of course, you have the whole phenomenon that you all know very well of the Magnificent Seven and how that's driven all the market returns. And if you look at everything in the S&P other than the Magnificent Seven, you see that the markets were flat over the last several years. And it's really hard to be a public company and to try and evaluate yourself based on what the public market thinks of your share price. I suppose the often sort of cited criticism of public markets is that they overreact. Critics of your industry level the opposite accusation at you. So they would say valuations are perhaps slower moving and possibly more subjective. What would you say to those critics? Well, I think a few things. It's changing is the first thing. I think with the advent of I'm going to give you a long answer, Tom, if you don't mind, because I think it's a very good question and I think it bears real thinking about. But the industry has become, as I said before, much larger and much more complex. And one of the ways in which it's become more complex is the ability to participate in the same company, but in different ways. And so you can participate, obviously, in the equity or in the debt of the company in private markets. You can also participate it, whether you're going through a fund, or whether you're going directly into the company through a co-investment, or whether you're going into it in a more mature phase of its private market existence through a secondary. And each of those has different risk return profiles associated with it. So the ability to construct portfolios today in private markets of different durations and different risk profiles is radically changed from what it was 15 or 20 years ago. So that enables people like us to create these, what we call evergreen vehicles, where you're constructing portfolios of private markets investments that allow for elements of liquidity. And once you introduce elements of liquidity, you then have to introduce valuations that are shorter term, that are more regular, if you see what I'm saying. So we have vehicles at Hamilton Lane, and we're one of the very largest in this evergreen area, particularly in among multi-managers participating in the middle market, which is where the most interesting returns traditionally have been in the private markets. We are having to come up with valuations now on a much more frequent basis. So we offer monthly liquidity in some of these vehicles. And so the valuation cycle in private markets is getting faster I think that the way they're done, though, is more subjective, as you're saying, and is in some ways designed not to allow for the wild fluctuations that you see in public markets valuations, where you're using different methodologies and, frankly, generally more conservative methodologies to try and assess the value. So you're right. You don't see wild fluctuations, certainly in the buyout space. I think in, in venture, obviously, if you've got a great company that's doing really well and is going to return 10 times your investment or whatever, you can see a, a little more fluctuation in valuations. And you see that in the venture industry generally, whether you're talking about secondaries, co-investments or fund investments in venture. But in buyouts, things tend to be a little steadier. I think general partners in buyouts, they really don't want to disappoint their investors. And so they are inherently going to be conservative in marking companies. And you see that in the data that we have. What you see is a phenomenon where when a general partner sells a company and has an actual realization event, it's generally at a premium to what it's been carrying the company at. And frankly, the numbers are something like about a 20% premium to what the company was worth, according to them, 12 months before the sale. And as they approach the sale, the valuation and the sale price tend to come together a little more because they have a better idea of what it's going to be. They really don't like surprising their constituents. And so there is an element for sure of judgment, conservatively applied and using a variety of valuation metrics. So when they're looking, for example, at a comp set, if they're using public comparables as the valuation, they will look at a range of them. They're not going to look at just one. And so what happens with these public companies that I'm describing where one company has one earnings announcement and you have a radical change in how it trades is when you're looking at a group of them, 
it's muted. And so that also, I think, allows for somewhat more consistency in the valuation approach of private markets. But people are comfortable with it. I mean, these evergreen vehicles, we value them monthly. People come in and people leave at the prices that our third-party valuation experts come up with, and people accept that. And that's been going on now for a number of years. I'd say there are certain markets around the world that have had private markets investments in defined contribution schemes, so notably Australia, for a long time. And so they've been doing these kinds of valuations for longer, and generally people have been comfortable with them. You talked about the growth in the industry. I wondered if you might speak a little bit more to the returns that have been available for investors. Possibly that's a more valid metric, I suppose, for our listeners to judge the performance of the industry by. Yeah, why don't we take, I mean, it depends on which subsector. I would say in almost all of them, private markets over long periods of time have outperformed public markets, and they should, because you shouldn't give up liquidity and data and information and ability to move around and shift around a portfolio without getting something for it. So if there wasn't a premium in performance, you'd be very surprised. You'd be surprised that an industry had grown so much, had gained so much credibility in the world and was now managing as much money as we've been talking about if there wasn't. So there should be, and there is. And so if we take it Subpart by subpart, if you start with buyouts, which is the biggest part, maybe we should talk a little bit about what appropriate measurement tools are, just because you're dealing with something that you're not able to value every day, you're not able to get in and out of every day. And so you're having people commit to these fund structures where the money is drawn down over time. So when you commit to a private equity fund, you're making, in effect, a 10 or 12-year commitment to a program and to a manager. And what you're doing is signing up and saying, okay, when you call money from me, I will send it to you. And you have the right to do that generally over the next five years. So I'm signing up, I'm committing to your fund, I'm signing the documents. Now tell me when you want the money. So you send the money in, they invest the money in the companies that they are buying and managing. Ideally, they're increasing the value of those companies. And then you're turning around, they're turning around, selling them and sending you the money back with a gain. So how do you measure that? I mean, that's different than buying a stock today and getting a dividend and selling it tomorrow. It requires different tools. The only tool that really pulls them together is what we call public market equivalents. And this is something that has been developed by the academic community, the global academic community in private markets over the last 20, 25 years as a way to really compare them. And so the way that works is you run a model which at the same time as the underlying fund pulls down money to invest in a company, you take the same amount of money and you invest it in a public stock index. And then when they sell the company, you assume analytically that you're selling the public stock index. So you look at what would have happened had I taken the same amount of money and put it into a public stock index compared to putting it into this fund or this group of funds or this industry? You can measure it at whatever level you want to measure it. And if you look over the last 22 vintage years, buyouts have outperformed global equities in every single one of those vintage years. So when I say vintage year, what does that mean? Private markets, a little bit like wine, there are vintages. And so a given set of funds that starts investing in a given year is considered the vintage of that year. And so there's a vintage from 2003 and a vintage from 2004 and a vintage from 2022. Each vintage is impacted, of course, by what the investment environment looks like in the following 10 years, five years when the money is being invested and then five years when the investments are being harvested. So if you run that public market equivalence analysis, across the vintage years from 2000 through 2021, you see outperformance by private markets in every single one of those years on average. That's not just the best private market funds or the best deals or the co-investments or whatever it is. That's just the buyout fund industry. And the outperformance is an average margin of 956 basis points. That's what our analysis shows. So it's pretty considerable. Partly you taking that net of the fees? Yes. Yeah. Those are fund level returns, never fees. 
And over the five years, not per year, I assume. It's just looking at where those vintages are. So if you took an example of the vintage, like, like I said, 2003 vintage, and you looked at today, so that's now those funds are now 21 years old. So they're largely invested and liquidated. I mean, maybe there's a couple of little things left, but that's going to be pretty small. And you look at what would have happened when those dollars or pounds, whatever, were invested in the underlying funds that were operating in that year. Every time you put a pound into one of those funds, you put one into the public index. And then every time you got money back, you pulled it out of the public index. That's what it looked like. And that outperformance, public market performance for the 2003 vintage would have yielded you something around 5%. And the private market's performance, I'm just looking at a chart here, the private market performance was more like 18% buyout performance. You can do that same analysis for private credit. You can do it for private real estate. You can do it for private infrastructure. It's different in each case. The case that's maybe the hardest to make is private real estate because you have the REITs that sit there that you can invest in that are public, sort of very similar to some of the private real estate funds. And so there are times when REITs do outperform private real estate funds. So that's maybe the most difficult case. But in every other case, the private markets are outperforming almost every year. I mean, that's really interesting and good to hear some of those numbers that you have described there. I suppose one of the other, not not criticisms, but perhaps points that investors highlight with regards private market returns, certainly since the global financial crisis in 2008, is that, you know, we've been in a low interest rate environment, cost of debt has been cheap, that has resulted, well, it certainly resulted in a boon from the industry in terms of growth profile, but many people argue it's been a boon for the industry in terms of driving the excess returns that you've described there. Could you perhaps describe your thoughts on that and how you see the environment from here where we're in a higher rate environment for the time being. Obviously, cost of capital then is a bit higher. Do you think the sort of level of returns and outperformance of public markets will continue to be delivered by the private equity and private market industry? Or do you see that moderating somewhat? I think those are great questions. I think the, I've kind of three answers. I'll take your kind of final question first, which is, I think the industry has to deliver this. If it doesn't, then it can't exist. And so I think people that are operating in the private markets industry have to price in a higher cost of capital today than they did three years ago. With interest rates up, you know, call it four or 500 basis points, the risk-free rate is therefore up four or 500 basis points. And if you use a capital asset pricing model, which is what everybody uses when they're evaluating financial investments, your equity risk premium is sitting on top of a higher risk-free rate. And then you have to add an illiquidity premium for that to participate in private markets. So I think that's one of the reasons why deal volumes have been down these last two years is because buyers are looking at the higher rate environment and saying, I need to make a higher rate of return because otherwise what justifies my existence? And sellers take a while to readjust their expectations. If something was worth 100 pounds yesterday, why am I going to sell it for 70 pounds today? I don't like that. I'm going to, maybe it'll come back. I'm just going to hold on, you know? And so you had this whole dynamic in the markets of things taking a while to adjust. That was most extreme in the venture markets. And so you really see that in what happened in late 2021 as the venture valuations kind of went really into a bubble type phase. And you had all these investors doing venture that really weren't long-term professional venture capital investors that were driving valuations up. There were all these kind of theories of, well, I'm going to pay a lot, but I'm creating the winner in the industry and therefore it's worth paying a lot. I mean, it was that kind of a thing that was going on. So I think the market has to adjust. I think capital is more expensive. Returns have to go up. Relative returns have to go up. Your question about leverage, there's kind of two answers to that. One is, When the cost of capital goes up, valuations go down. Things are not worth as much, right? And so that's true for public companies and it's true for private companies. Public companies have leverage too. A lot of them have a fair amount of leverage. And so the question really isn't, is private equity going to do what it's done before? But how does private equity look compared to the public market alternative? That's really the question that I think we face. And so in the higher rate environment, 
you come back to looking at, well, what is private equity doing to the underlying companies? You know, if it's just a leverage game, then a few things would be true. Number one, the returns that I cited to you before, the public market equivalence returns that have been better for private buyouts and buyouts for every year for the last 22 years, that wouldn't be the case because there were years then when the public markets were down, right? Think about the global financial crisis. So if valuations were going down in the public markets and if private market companies are more leveraged and if the value that's added to private markets companies is only a function of that leverage, then it should look like a mortgage on a house. And you should have a phenomenon where private markets performance in those bad years should be worse than public market performance. Because if you're saying that overall, they're not adding any value, they're, all they're doing is putting leverage on these things, then you're in a situation where when the overall enterprise value goes down, well, the debt doesn't go down because the debt is the debt. So therefore, the equity should go down more. So if you have a more leveraged situation here and a less leveraged situation in, the, in a public company, the private market's equity value should go down more than the public market value. That didn't happen. And it didn't happen going back in time to times when it's not just people making up valuations, it's actually what happened. And you can see that. So the argument that private equity is just a function of leverage doesn't hold water. The other way you can look at it is to say, well, what about the underlying portfolio companies? What are the metrics? How do private equity-owned companies do compared to public markets companies? We track that data. We look at revenue growth, and we look at EBITDA margin, and we look at enterprise value. And you can see, and I, I, we have the data, but we can show you for the years that we've been tracking this, that private equity-owned companies grow faster than public companies and have better margins. And so I think that that's the underlying core of what I was talking about before. When you have a controlling shareholder who brings in an engaged board with appropriate domain expertise and empowers them and the management team, aligns them all to drive long-term value, you actually create better businesses. And I do think you see that in the underlying numbers. I assume those underlying numbers also show a similar leverage dynamic. Do you have that data or is that harder to get a picture of? Well, this is just a very high level. So it is harder to get a picture of. It's very high level of what's the underlying, leaving leverage aside, what's the underlying performance of private market-owned companies compared to public companies? And the performance is better. And so the fact of leverage is taken out of that measurement. And then if you add that back in, obviously, if you're in an environment where there's a downdraft in valuation, the more levered company will have more pressure on the equity. But the underlying performance has overcome that in these situations. So if I were to ask you to consult your tea leaves, you would be of the opinion that private markets will continue to outperform public markets? Yes, I would. And I guess I can sort of follow on from that to a certain extent. There has undoubtedly, as you mentioned at the beginning, been growth in the industry. You know, there has been enormous value generated by private equity owned companies, but there's also been increased institutional capital put to work in the space. I wondered whether you could talk about some of the reasons behind that. Clearly, there's access to hopefully a better excess return potential and improved returns on public markets. There is the potential, I guess, from a portfolio diversification standpoint to add private markets in because it adds something different and different return drivers. But perhaps, certainly in the low interest rate environment, there's been a sort of creeping out along the risk return spectrum in order to meet return hurdles for institutions and endowments, which may have changed somewhat given the repricing in the rate environment. What would be great to do is get a sort of favor of some of the questions, issues, problem solving. Some of your larger clients are coming to you now, having been invested in the private markets for some time and looking forward from here. Well, I think when you look overall at private markets, the things that really impact returns, and this is true for public markets as well, of course, is underlying economic activity. And so today, the concerns our clients have today really are less about our private markets valid. We don't hear that very much. People assume and I think look back on the history and assume that they are valid, that you do get paid a premium for giving up liquidity. And that given whatever your portfolio construction is, has to relate to what you're going to use the money for. So if you're an endowment that pays out 5% a year, 
which is what most U.S. endowments pay out in terms of the draw rate, plus or minus 5% a year, you're able to forecast pretty well what your liquidity needs are going out over the next several years. You can reserve money in more liquid form for that in liquid markets, ETFs, bond funds, you know, whatever kinds of things that you can get access to. And then you can take the balance and allocate it more into private markets. And so because endowments have fairly low liquidity needs, they can wind up with pretty high allocations to illiquids. I think there are other pools of money, certain pension schemes or other family offices, people who have different levels of need for the money that will be comfortable with less allocated to private markets because they need more money in the shorter term. So portfolio construction becomes really important as the private markets gain credibility and people want to be involved in them more and more. The biggest concerns we hear today, frankly, are more macro. That's something also that didn't used to really impact us in private markets. Back when we were 2% of someone's portfolio or 5% of someone's portfolio, you know, it was always about picking a good manager and finding the great deal. And it was more like acknowledge that you were really kind of experimenting with this little potentially interesting area, but really it wasn't, you know, 95% of your portfolio was going to be in other stuff. Today, when, when private markets portfolios can range, you know, from 20% of someone's assets up to 50% of someone's assets, there's much more concern about, wait, okay, what is the macro picture going to do to private markets? So we spend a lot more time on that as well. And I think right now, the feeling is that we are headed towards a soft landing in the U.S. economy, which is about 70% of private markets is invested in the U.S. economy. It's also about 70% of the capital allocated to private markets, maybe a little bit less, comes from the U.S. That is changing. I expect those numbers will be quite different 10 years from now, and we can talk about that. That's not really the question you asked. That'd be interesting to know. Do you mean more diversification from a geographic standpoint? Yes, I do think so. I think to your question, the U.S. has been a very, very strong market for a long time. Well, that's both public and private markets, to be fair. It is, but I don't have tea leaves on this one. But (laughs) if I look at the geopolitical situation, and I look, frankly, at some of these economies that are developing and growing, I think Europe has a very healthy private markets industry, despite all the challenges that Europe and the UK have from a macro standpoint or a geopolitical standpoint. The private markets industries have developed very nicely and continue to develop very nicely. You have some leading players that are based in Europe and the UK now. And those industries have been around for a while, but not as long as the US. And they continue to grow and continue to find interesting opportunity. And then if you look around the world at other markets, you see private markets activity growing and gaining credibility, including in China. China has a very well-developed private markets business. They have a venture capital business. They have a buyout business. They have a growth capital business. They have some very good players there that know how to manage these companies. There's good value to be had there today. We opened an office in Shanghai last year, largely to be able to participate in the Chinese private equity market. We're what they call a qualified foreign limited partner, QFLP. And we're able to transact in the renminbi-denominated private equity markets of China, which have become the most important private fund markets in China are in the renminbi-denominated funds. So I do think you'll see increasing globalization of the asset class, partly because investors have to. If you're an investor sitting anywhere, including in the U.S., you can't just bet it all on that your local economy is going to continue to be good. And especially in in an environment like this that is so volatile and so unpredictable, diversification is your friend. And I think you're going to see people starting to or continuing to diversify more and more across their portfolios. But back to your question really about the risk. So I, I think people are concerned about macroeconomic factors. I think there's more confidence today in a soft landing. And I think we feel more confident today in a soft landing in the US. And that's very good for private markets because it gives buyers confidence in what they're buying. It's very hard if you're looking at a, at a hard landing scenario and there's going to be a recession and you're trying to forecast that into the earnings of companies that you're buying, whether public or private. And you're saying, oh, my gosh, you know, corporate earnings could go down to some number that makes it very hard to make a significant commitment. And I think as you see more of a soft landing playing out, you think 
interest rates are not likely to continue to increase. They might even get cut. That changes your level of confidence in making private markets investment. The hardest thing to handicap is the geopolitics. People don't know U.S. presidential election, uh, what's going on in all these other elections around the world, what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Ukraine. I think people are right now assuming that those things will be more or less contained in one way or another, and that we're sort of going to move in a better direction, that the U.S. presidential election will likely not result in Donald Trump becoming president again, not because he's an awful person, but because he's a volatile person. And volatility is not the friend of investors. Hartley, there is definitely a political motivation in the UK to move savings towards private investment, particularly to fund infrastructure, which the critic would say our government can't afford. And I believe your government is in a similar position. What advice would you have for trustees or savers when faced with that decision? I think infrastructure is one of the most interesting, maybe the most interesting area in private markets today. I think the potential for growth is very, very large. And I think you said it exactly, Tom. I think it's a combination of government spending is challenged in every economy. And so you've got a situation where there's just an enormous need for capital. And you can break that down in a number of ways. I think first and foremost, addressing some of the climate issues, addressing some of the fossil fuel issues. So transitioning away from fossil fuels into other fuels and especially in the big carbon using markets like the more developed economies. It's, you know, it's very hard for developed economies to say to underdeveloped economies, well, you're not allowed to have the standard of living we have and you can't emit the carbon that we all emitted for so long. And so I think the pressure on developed economies to continue to reduce their carbon emissions is going to be very high. And I think the opportunities and in infrastructure in those areas is very significant. So energy transition, very, very high. I think the polarization of the world into different blocks with less free trade and more supply chains that are a little more domestically oriented or nearshored is a huge opportunity. If you go to northern Mexico today, for example, and you look at the construction that's going on there, it's a construction boom. Places like Monterey and Mexico look the way that Shenzhen used to look outside of Hong Kong in terms of new factories, and all of the infrastructure around that, whether it's the buildings themselves or the services into the buildings or the transportation required to move the goods or the raw materials. I mean, there's, there's huge needs around that. And then finally, the continuing data revolution where, you know, with the need to both generate computing power and transmit information results in big opportunities in things like data centers and and in the related services and support around that. So I think infrastructure is really important. I think that climate change has not gone away just because political dialogues have moved in different directions. The reality of it is pretty real. And the reality of it is going to impact not just the people living in areas affected by storms or sea level rise, but they're also going to impact the financial markets, particularly the insurance markets, because if you're not able to insure things that are exposed to climactic events, that's a real problem. And so I think climate change is something that, that may be a little more muted today, given political dialogues, but I think it's going to come back because it's a fact. And I think the investment in things dealing with climate change, starting with moving away from fossil fuels, it has to pay off because it has to be done. What would make your outlook wrong, do you think, especially versus public markets? Are there any warning signs that you could offer to listeners and investors that perhaps there's just too much money chasing, too few assets? Or what would you look for to change your opinion? Well, I think, again, the private markets have gotten so big and so global and so multifaceted. So I think you really have to break it down into the individual pieces and look at those individual pieces. I don't see much that would impact negatively, broadly speaking, the buyout market. I mean, obviously, like any investing asset class, public or private, there are good managers and bad managers, and there, there are good deals and bad deals. And so you have to have adequate diversification, and you have to be involved with people who know what they are doing, 
and are managing your money carefully. And so I think the risk in any kind of growth market and private markets broadly are a growth market is that you get bad actors that come in, take advantage of people. People make stupid investment decisions, think they know what they're doing when they don't. I worry about this with family offices. Uh, As I told you, I ran this fund at Morgan Stanley called Prince's Gate that was made up of family offices. And one of the trends that I see today is family offices thinking that they can do co-investments themselves. Co-investments are a great thing. That's a great way to manage the fee level. It's a great way to increase concentration in a private markets portfolio. But in a world where 20% of investments lose money, so that's the statistic in buyouts, 20% of buyout investments do not return capital. So if you're picking individual deals as a co-investment and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to pick some of those 20% that lose money. And if you only do a few co-investments, you might be unlucky and have those few co-investments be in that 20% area. So what I would say is the critical risk to family offices doing co-investments is they don't actually know what they're doing and they don't actually have the deal flow to be able to pick good deals out of an enormous deal flow. So at at Hamilton Lane, sorry for the advertisement, but at Hamilton Lane, we have a very large footprint, right? We're the largest investor in the world in private equity funds, in private markets funds. We put out about $35 billion a year into funds. That creates a deal flow to us on the co-investment side that is second to none. Last year we saw, I think, Freddie, I can't remember, I think it was $40 billion of equity co-investment opportunity, over a thousand deals. And in our primary co-investment fund, we picked, I think, 12 deals out of that thousand deals and put them into the fund. So we work really hard to make sure that we're investing in good deals. And we turn down the vast majority of the deals that we see. Your ordinary family office does not have that kind of deal flow. In fact, I don't think any family office has that kind of deal flow. And so to think that you can go about making co-investments just because you know a manager and they're going to bring you their best deal, that's a very dangerous thing to think. So I worry about, Tom, sorry for the long answer to the question, but I worry about people thinking they can do it themselves when the whole reason, as I told you at the beginning, that we set up Hamilton Lane, because there's a power disequilibrium between limited partners and general partners. General partners have more money and more information than limited partners do. And so a firm like us is set up to help limited partners level the playing field and be able to really take advantage of opportunities there. So I worry about the expansion of private markets, creating this feeling of either I can do it myself or listening to people that should not be listened to. Those are kind of the things that I worry the most about. That's very clear, Hartley. You've been extremely generous in your time today. One question that I can't let you get off the hook on. I mean. There is no doubt fees are high in the private market arena, certainly versus the public market sphere. Clearly, there's been a huge pressure on active in the public markets through to the rise of passive investing, so tracking market indices. How do you see that area of the business evolving as this industry grows? And could you provide a framework for why and how the private market arena is able to continue to justify a slightly higher fee than currently public market investors are susceptible to? Well, I think you're absolutely right. The fee, it's an expensive asset class. The net returns have compensated for that expense historically, but as the industry grows and the amount of capital available to it does not grow, in other words, there's an endless appetite for people to raise private equity funds, right? Because it's a great way of making money. You know, you, you charge your one and a half percent annual management fee, you get 20% of the upside. And so people in that business will grow infinitely and try to grow. And so what you saw, interestingly, before interest rates went up. So if you, if you went back into 2021, I think there were 15 funds trying to raise north of $15 billion that year. And by just running the numbers out, not just of those 15 funds, but about of the industry and looking at everybody trying to raise money and then looking at institutional portfolios and saying, well, where's the money going to come from? Because they have allocations and they were already at allocation in terms of their portfolios, at the allocation of private markets. You could see 
that there was no way that all the general partners trying to raise money were going to be able to raise money, even good general partners, even people who in 2021 could say, hey, I had a 30% return on my last fund or a 40% return on my last fund. There just simply wasn't enough money. And so that then was exacerbated by the raise in interest rates. And you've had already the beginning of a sorting in our industry into winners and losers. And that's industry dynamic is really interesting, something that I think will continue to play out as it matures. And it relates directly to the fee levels as well, because what people do is they offer more and more co-invests because co-invests are fee-free generally. So they come and say, you know, here's my deal. I'm putting $50 million in out of my fund and I'm raising co-investment of $25 million. Would you like to participate in that? And that's going to be fee-free. So what happens at the end of the day is they've cut price by a third because they've given a fee-free co-invest for a third of the money that they're putting into the deal. And so that is happening. Co-investments are very much on the rise and will continue to be on the rise. And that is something that is a way, in effect, of cutting fees. They also do it for larger investors. This is not fair, of course, for your average retail investor and is another reason why working through a firm like ourselves that is big enough to be looked at as a large investor is helpful. But if you're a sovereign wealth fund and you're putting a multi-hundred million dollar check into a buyout fund, you will get some fee breaks. And so you see that around the edges as well. So I think the question is a great question. It is an expensive asset class. I do think the prices are coming down a little bit because of the things that we talked about, but it's an expensive asset class and there's no way around that. Understood. That has been a phenomenal overview of the private market opportunity set and a great introduction to Hamilton Lane. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for taking the time. It's very generous of you. No worries. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Tom Savile, my co-host, Luke Hyde-Smith, and our guest this week, Hartley Rogers. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided does not constitute investment advice, and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.